eat it. We're going to continue. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to 1 John, 1 John chapter 2. And today we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. In 1 Corinthians 13, you don't have to turn there, is the famous love chapter. By the way, that is probably one of the most misquoted, misunderstood chapters. You go to every wedding and they say, love is this, love is that. But it's talking about the spiritual gift of love. It's not talking about the love between a man and a woman. Anyway, that's just a side note. I'm digressing. I promise I won't do it. I will stay linear. I promise you. But in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, reads as follows. But now abide faith, hope, love. The greatest of these is love. In the church, we hear significant amounts of both faith and love. But we often hear less about hope. And not sure why that is, but hope is especially significant to the believer. And it's equally as important. As we're going to see in our text today, Christian hope. That's what we're going to be talking about. Christian hope today is not wishful thinking. But rather, Christian hope is fixing ourselves on the certainty of God and the promises of his word. That's what Christian hope is. We fix ourselves on the certainty of God. We must all get to a place where we recognize and we realize God is who God says he is. And God is sovereign and God is above this earth. And here is a big one. And God is above me. I'm not the center of the universe. I live my life in submission to him. So in our text today, we're going to look at, John is going to begin by summarizing the importance of our walk in Christ and the evidences that it produces. He will then turn and remind us of hope that believers can have in Christ. And through the word of God, John will show us that believers in Christ, that we have a blessed hope. We have a blessed hope in Christ. And he's going to show us three promises of that hope. John's going to show that believers can have hope in Christ in the following. Number one, believers shall be like Christ. Believers shall be like Christ. Number two, believers shall see Christ. Get that one wrapped around your mind there for a second. And number three, believers shall be poor believers shall uh, pure believers shall be pure they shall be blameless they shall be righteous like Christ so as we look at our text let's look at 1 John chapter 2 verses 28 through 1 John 313 I'll read it through and then we'll go through our exposition 
beginning with verse 28, and now little children abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. And see how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has not yet appeared as what we shall be. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. And that is the word of God. We thank God for it. The first thing we're going to take a look at is verse 28. And John is going to reiterate this very important point that abiding in Christ is evidence of believing. That abiding in Christ is evidence in believing. John begins to sum up the points and the facts that he previously made in chapter 2. In verse 28, John begins by using the term, and now. See right there, and now, little children. And now becomes the conjunction. It joins two independent thoughts. Well, what is it joining? It's joining what John had previously spoken about in chapter 2. And John uses not only that conjunction and now, but he also uses the term that we've seen before in 1 John, little children. And I've shared with you before that John uses this term because John is advanced in years now. John is estimated is in his 90s at this point. And John sees himself as a spiritual father to the churches in Asia at, time, at the time. Remember, he is writing this letter to the churches in Asia. And it is an encouragement, and it is also warned against false doctrine and false truth that was beginning to permeate the church, particularly the teaching of Gnosticism. And John is reiterating a term that he has consistently used throughout this epistle and in his gospel. And that term is to abide. And I've shared with you before that to abide means to remain. And it means to remain consistently. You're consistently remaining. You're not staying and departing for a season, then coming back. You're consistent. You're being consistent. You're living in consistency to the revealed word of God and to the commandments of Christ. You know, John uses that word abide. Jesus uses that word abide a dozen times in the 15th chapter of John. Abide in me as you cannot abide in yourselves as a... You know, the vine abides in the branch. And he reminds the churches in this verse that if we abide in Christ, if we consistently remain in obedience to Christ, that we will not have to shrink away at his coming. We will not have to be ashamed when Christ appears. 
By the way, if you want a little side note, this is evidence that the Bible teaches the return of Jesus Christ to come back and for his church. He says, you won't have to be ashamed at the appearing. And John links in verse 28 and all through chapter 2, this abiding with true faith and belief. Matter of fact, I was talking before church, and one of the things I said is, what I love the most about the epistle of 1 John is it is a needle-in-the-eye epistle. In other words, he makes things very obvious and very clear, right? John talks about, do not love the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. How do you have to exposit that? How do you have to explain that truth? That's pretty obvious. Don't love the world, nor the things of the world. And if anybody loves the things of the world, the love of the Father is not in them. You don't need an eight-hour sermon on that one. And I love John. You know, we, he's always been portrayed kind of, I hate to say this, but if you look at the Middle Ages artists, they portrayed him kind of effeminate. But John and his brother James were the sons of thunder. They were the sons of Zebedee. They were the one when Jesus preached in the Samaritan town and they came to Jesus to get out of here, get out of here. We don't want to hear this stuff. It was John who said to the Lord, Lord, you want us to call down fire from heaven and destroy them? John is very direct. And notice what he says. Abide in him so you don't have to be ashamed at his appearance. If you're with us on Tuesday night, we've been, we just embarked on Tuesday night of a study of the, the end times. It's not going to be exhaustive. It's not going to be a five-year study, but just enough. And I said the goal, the goal of this is not to intrigue people. The goal of this is not to make people interested. The goal of this is so that we will live in the knowledge and the recognition that we must live within the imminent return of Christ. Christ is coming back. I don't know when. I'm not going to make a guess. For all I know, Christ can come back during this service, after this service, next week, next month, a hundred years. I do have an opinion. I don't believe it's going to be a hundred years. I believe the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. And it's my opinion. Look at verse 29. The Apostle John says, If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. All throughout the epistle of 1 John, John makes a very poignant point. And that point goes something like this. Righteousness begets righteousness. Unrighteousness begets unrighteousness. That's it. That's the point he makes. If you walk rightly with God, you are of God. If you walk unrighteously of God, if the pattern of your life is uh, consistent disobedience to God, then here's a bulletin. You're not of God. The church has devolved in the last 50 to 60 years into this mess where we have qualified what salvation is. We have qualified mistakenly what believers look like. 
We have told people that, hey, you could live in perpetual sin and disobedience to the word of God to the point that you could become an atheist. But as long as you said a prayer, as long as you signed the card, you're saved. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The church rejected that many years ago. It's called antinomianism. And the antinomianism started as, as a group of people who said, it doesn't matter, as long as you're saved, you can live. You don't have to focus on holiness. You don't have to focus on righteousness. Just focus on your justification. You were made right in Christ. And so we have generation upon generation upon generation of people who've made some sort of profession of faith. But there was no evidence of a change in their life. Here's a question for you. Has God called men and women to be testimonies for him? Has he saved men and women so that they can live a life of perpetual disobedience, look sound and act just like the world? That doesn't make sense to you. It doesn't make sense to me. It does not makes sense to God. When God saves a man or a woman, God changes a man or woman. And he changes them for holiness. He changes them to be set apart unto him. The sad thing you see happening in the church today is the church is conforming more and more like the world. The church looks more and more like the world. We adopted all of the world's ways and now we're adopting the world's philosophies into the church. Praise God. Look what John said in chapter 2, verse 24. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. I want you to notice something here. John uses two different Greek words in verse, 28, uh, verse 29 for know, K-N-O-W. The first one he says, if you know, is the Greek word oida. And that word means to perceive. If you perceive that he, capital H, who? He, Christ, is righteous. Notice the second one. Then you know, and this is the word that we see so often in the New Testament, the word gnosko, gnosko, which simply means to know by experience. You notice there's a difference. There's a perceptual knowledge, and he contrasts that with an experiential knowledge. Guess which knowledge the believer in Jesus Christ lives in? He lives in the experiential knowledge. The believer of Christ has come to a place of repentance and faith in Christ. The believer in Christ has come to a place where he has been touched by the Holy Spirit. He has been changed and experientially can apprehend the word of God by faith. We just... John's point is this, that if people know, if they perceive that God is righteous, they can recognize that those who practice righteousness of God do in fact know God. 
Doesn't that seem to make sense? Doesn't it seem to make sense if we go around and we, we're telling everybody that we're believers in Christ, we're followers of Jesus Christ? Does it not make sense that the believer or the follower of Jesus Christ should in fact exemplify and be obedient and submissive to the teachings of Jesus Christ? I mean, that makes perfect sense. What if you had somebody who was a police officer and they stood up in front of everybody and said, I'll tell you what, I'm a police officer. I enforce the law. I do this. I do that. And then you go outside and you see them breaking the law and you see them stealing and you see them shaking people down. What would you think? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. You'd say this guy's full of baloney. He's a liar. His deeds don't match what he professes. Simply put, there is a direct cause and effect. There's a direct cause and effect regarding salvation in Jesus Christ that produces righteousness. It produces godly righteousness in the man or woman. The Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians 5.17. You probably know this. If any man is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creation. All of the old things, all of the old ways, everything they used to be has been what? Passed away. It's been done away with. And what? Everything becomes new. Let us know for sure this truth. And I put it very simply this way. This way. That if we confess Christ, then our confession should match our commitment. Should it not? If we profess Christ, then our profession should match our possession. Should it not? If we declare Christ the Savior, then our deeds should match our declaration. Should it not? Let's not lightly or flippantly use biblical terminology or, or hold to intellectual truths that are not evident in our hearts and life. That's the sin of the Pharisees. Did the Pharisees know the word of God? You're darn tootin' they did. They had those first five books of the Pentateuch memorized. They knew all of the written law. They knew all of what was called back then the oral law of God. And on the exterior, they tried to portray that. But on the interior, what did Jesus say to them? They're full of dead men's bones. And inside, they're corrupt and they're defiled. That's the point that John is making here. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is what? Born of him, born of God. The question that most people have to ask themselves, are you born of God? Are you born of that good seed? Look at chapter 3, verse 1, as John continues here. He states this, See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called children of God. And such we are, for this reason the world does not know us. 
because it did not know him. And here, John is going to now pivot. He has summed up the things in chapter 2, and now he's, he's pivoting now, and he's going to bring a new, a, new, uh, a, a new theme in here, and he's going to talk about Christian hope. And he begins by saying, in light of the things that I have previously told you, in light of these things, I want to show you something. I want to show you something that's great. And here he goes. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. This is very clearly written to believers, very clearly written to the church. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. I told you that all hope, all Christian hope is built upon an immovable certainty of God and his promises, his truth. And here he begins to build upon that hope. After reminding us throughout this epistle regarding our character and conduct in John chapter 2, John now takes us to the beauty of the Christian faith, reminds us of the love of the Father. It is the love of the Father to his children, that unmerited love, that redeeming love, that eternal love of the Father that our Christian Hope is built on. We just sang that song in worship before, right? His mercy is more. Our sins may be many, but his mercy is more. We sat neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Let me ask you this. What hope would you have in Christ if you could not believe that when you repented from your sins that they were forgiven? The greatest truth in the Christian faith that I think sometimes gets ignored is this. That when a man and when a woman comes to faith in Jesus Christ, they may have in the past committed many grievous, horrible sins. The world, if they knew some of them, may be aghast at some of the things that we did. But one of the greatest truths is the fact that when we repent of those sins, that God remembers them no more. Let that sink in. You know why? Because I know everyone has their own sins that no people know. But think about that from a moment. You know that God doesn't look around the body of the church and he goes, there goes my buddy Sam. My buddy Sam used to be an alcoholic. My buddy Sam used to be a drug addict. My buddy Sam used to be a criminal. And there goes Mary. And, and, and Mary was an adulteress. And Mary was a fornicator. And, but I saved them. I saved them. You know, God doesn't know that. The blood of Jesus Christ is ever cleansing. The blood of Jesus Christ wipes away all sin. Lord, if you would mark our transgressions, who would stand, right? Who would stand? If the Lord kept the record and a deed of every single transgression, there would be no one saved. But because of the blood of Jesus Christ, 
Our transgressions have been wiped. Who? For those who have repented of their sins and come to faith in Jesus Christ. Wiped away. He's taken our sins and he has cast it into the depths of the sea. To be remembered no more. There is a direct result of the love of the Father for the believer in Jesus Christ. God has granted us an amazing and a magnificent privilege. John says here in verse 3-1, what does he say? John says that the love of God has been bestowed. It has been bestowed upon believers in Christ. That word means... It is given. I make a point about that because it's not earned. It's not earned. Nobody earns that grace. Nobody earns that mercy. That love is reflected and God would grant all believers to be called what? Children. Children of God. Believers are born again of the Spirit of God and subsequently have become children of God. Listen, the world states that all human beings are children of God. And that is 100% false. It's 100% false. All human beings are creations of God, but not all human beings are children of God. John addressed this, Jesus addressed this in John chapter 1 verses 12 and 13. Listen to what Jesus said, uh, that John said, but as many as received him, and by the way that word receive means to aggressively take hold, to lay hold, for as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, and he qualifies it who were born not of blood, nor of the wit, notice this, nor of the will of the flesh. You see that? Nor of the will of man. But how are they born? They're born of God. That's what John says. Children of God are born of God. And this is not a racial or an ethnic right. Israel thought it was a racial and an ethnic right. Israel believed that no circumcised flesh would see hell. And so they grew up with indifference toward God because I was a Jew, therefore I'm in, I'm good, I'm saved, I'm circumcised. I'm of the seed of Abraham. That's what they believe. But this new birth doesn't have a racial or ethnic right. It's not nationalistic right. It's not a right as human beings. It's not a right of virtue of the new birth. If one has repented of their sins and by faith entrusted themselves to the mercy provided by Jesus Christ's death on the cross, if you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit and your life is giving evidence to the presence of God's righteousness in your life, then and only then are you a child of God. Listen, it's this foundational truth. I want you to get this. This is a foundational truth upon which all Christian hope 
hangs on. This is a foundational truth. For the believer in Christ, this truth is immovable. It's unshakable. It will not fade away. This hope that we have in Christ for forgiveness of sin will remain through trial. It will remain through tribulation. It will remain through testing. Listen, it will remain through death. It is the truth that our hope rests in the love of Jesus Christ. Christ who paid the ultimate ransom for our salvation. In that God loves me, he will freely give me all things. Christ has ransomed me. Christ has paid my penalty. My name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Christ secures me. Christ saves me. Christ will come and get me to be with him. It is this truth. that Jesus referred to in John 14. Turn in your Bibles with me to John 14, the Gospel of John. I want you to hear the words of Jesus Christ himself. John 14, beginning with verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled, Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Listen, this is a hope that the world knows nothing of. Knows what Jesus says here. Don't be troubled. What's going on in John 14? He's ready. They don't know. The disciples don't know. But the Lord is going to go to Calvary. He's going to, a few hours later, be in Gethsemane. He's going to be arrested, go through six mock trials. He's going to be sentenced to death. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be buried on this day. He says, let not your heart be troubled. Here's the foundational hope. Ready? Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now notice the hope. Listen, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. I know many of them say mansions. It's not a mansion. It actually does mean a dwelling place. It's one house with many rooms, if you think about it. That's what the point that Jesus is making here. In my Father's house, there's many rooms, and I'll tell you what. I'm going ahead, and I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be. And if, I'm going to, if this was a lie, I would have told you it's a lie. I would have told you it's not true, but I'm going to prepare a place, and I'll tell you what. If I'm going to pray, uh, prepare a place, then have this hope in you. I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to get you. I'm coming back to get you. The return of Christ is imminent. Christ is coming back for his church. That is part of the Christian hope that we have. And that hope isn't a, a license to get us to be lazy, to say, oh, I don't have to do anything. I hear Christians say all the time, oh, I don't care, you know, the Lord's coming any day now. God has called us to work and to work and to work the fields and work the harvest and serve him and serve him and serve him. So when we hear the shout, when we hear the trumpet blast, when we see the dead in Christ rise first, then we which shall remain shall be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. 
The Lord never says sit back, kick back on your couch, watch reruns of Gomer Pyle and just wait for me to come. Some of you younger people going, what's Gomer Pyle? This is a hope the world cannot afford. Everything in this world is temporal. You realize that? Everything in this world is temporal. And everything in this world is going to fade away. We anchor ourselves. We cling to stuff. We go to our finances. I'm going to hold on because I got this money. I'm going to hold on. All of that in a moment can be taken away. Can you put your hope in government? Come on now. Take a look at the government we have. We got a bunch of bozos running the country right now. And the history and the testimony of the world demonstrate you can't trust government. Can you put your hope in your finances? Anybody following Wall Street? Anybody have a 401k? Anybody watching the stock market tank? And, 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 and the rich are getting richer? And the history of the world testifies that money comes and goes. Can you anchor your hope in fellow human beings? My goodness, why are people so dumb? You know, people, one, one time person said to me, he said, I want, I want to let you know something. I, 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 I don't know how you could believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world. And I looked at the person, I said, I don't know how you could believe in your fellow man when there's so much suffering in the world. It's man that kills. It's man that rapes. It's men and it's armies of human beings that go to war against other nations. They're the ones who obliterate millions upon millions upon millions. Where is your hope in man when man robs and man steals and man takes another man's wife and man covets and and commits all kinds of heinous sins? And you're going to tell me you have hope in your fellow man? Since the creation of this world, this world has never been in peace. Never been in peace. The history of the world presents a bleak picture. A bleak pictures of the workings of sinful man. What in this world can one anchor their hope to that cannot fade away? And the answer is nothing. Only the believer in Christ Only the believer in Christ can have a permanent and lasting hope as a child of God. Listen how Peter put it. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Listen how Peter puts it. The apostle Peter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You catch that? As a believer in Christ, you are born to a living hope. Why? Because I'll tell you what, I can get cancer in this world, I could get COVID in this world, I could get stabbed, I could get shot, I could get run over by a bus, I could get a heart attack, I could get any number of illnesses. I will die one day if Jesus does not come before But nothing, nothing, nothing can take away my hope in Christ that my sins have been forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ. 
nothing. There is no cancer. There is no murderer. There is no serial killer. There is nothing if, the, if our nation outlawed Christianity today and they burst into this room and shot me with a machine gun. I am saved. I am blood washed and I will reign with Christ. And so will you. If you have repented of your sins and turned to Christ. There's one other point worth noting in this verse. John states that as children of God, we will be rejected by the world. You getting that? As children of God, we're going to be rejected by the world. We're not going to be accepted by the world. See, the church is all caught up today in being accepted by the world. The word, the church wants to be cool. The church wants to fit in. The church the, 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 the church wants to adopt all the philosophies and all the things of the world. But that's not what John says here in verse 1. He says as such, for this reason the world does not know us. Why? Because it did not know him. Who's him? Christ. We're weirdos. We're nut chops. I like the way the culture is putting it today. We're Christian nationalists. The world doesn't know Christ. You know what's sad? There are many in the church who don't know Christ too. They know of Christ, but they don't know Christ. And because the world does not know experientially, they do not know Christ. They don't know us as his children. And you know what the world does with what they don't know? They hate. The world hates believers. Why? Because they're of their father, the devil, who was a liar and a hater from the very, very beginning. Regardless of all of that, believers have a continual hope. Listen to the words of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I love this. He says, the Christian is a person who expects nothing from this world. (laughs) You like that? Expects nothing from this world. He does not pin his hope on it because he knows that it is doomed. But the Christian's hope is quite different. For the hope of believers is found in the power of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2 of chapter 3. John writes, Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet appeared as what we shall be. And we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is. Man, I love this verse. I love this verse, right? Look what he says. He says, now we're the children of God. He established that in verse 1. We're the children of God. And he reiterates the very importance of being called the children of God is that it's not something that we have earned. It has been given to us. It's bestowed upon that. We look at it. And we don't come to Christ on any merits of our own. We don't come to Christ on our own intellect, our logic, our good works. Believers are in Christ because of the merits of Christ. Christ's unmerited favor, his unearned 
grace is by God's sovereign decree. Believers' names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. That is an irrefutable fact of Scripture. Believers' names were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And we are drawn, believers are drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God granting grace and opening our eyes to believe. It is a work of God combining both the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. Jesus made this point in John 6, 44. He says, no one cometh to me unless the Father draw him. Unless the Father draw him, the Father's going to woo him in. And he woos him in by his effectual calling. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul made this statement, for by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It is What is a gift of God? That's the question in Ephesians 2, 8. What is is a gift of God. Well, let's look. For by grace you have been saved through faith. There it is. The object. Faith. That not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. The gift refers back to the object. What's the object? Faith. The faith to believe is a gift from God. He's granted us that faith. Believers in Christ have a blessed hope. John describes that hope in the confidence of Christ and his return for his children. Are you excited about Jesus coming back? I am. I'm fired up about that, man. I've been for the last several weeks just deep, deep study in the things of the, the return of Christ. And if we continue abiding in Christ, then when Christ appears or Christ is revealed, we can have confidence. John gives us, and I want you to see this here, John gives us three promises of God that we can have confidence in. And here's the first one. We shall be like Christ. Man, that is so unfathomable. We shall be like Christ. We shall be sinless, transformed, perfected, righteous, holy, immortal, incorruptible. We shall be like Christ because of the second promise that John makes here. We shall be like Christ because we shall see Christ. Out of all of, the one, all of them, this is the one that stirs me. We shall see Christ. To me personally, this is the best part. We shall see the object of our worship. How many times have you sat and prayed? And you cried out to God. And you asked the Lord Jesus for mercy. And you asked the Lord Jesus for grace. And you asked the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. And now the object of our faith, we shall lay our eyes upon him. We shall see Christ in all of his glory. We shall reign with Christ. 
we shall be able to bow before him and fall at his feet to adore him, to express our love and affection to him, to cast our crowns at his feet, to serve and to glorify him in purity and in holiness, in perfect harmony, in perfect harmony, we shall see Christ. I think the great hymn, When We See Christ, states it best. It says this, It shall be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One look at his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So go and run the race till we see Christ. Look at verse 3. There's a third promise in verse 3 here. John says, And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. In this verse, John tells us the impact of Christian hope on the life of the believer. And that word hope that is used in this text means an expectation of that which is sure. You follow me with that one? An expectation of that which is sure. What's sure? God's word is sure. God is sure. Christ's salvation is sure. The promises of God are sure. The Christian has that hope. And it is the certainty that it produces an expectation. And let me tell you something. Believers live within the promise of God, but with an expectation of his promises. And let me share something. It is an expectation and not a wish. It's certain. It's positive. Christian Hope involves certainty of that which is true. Christian hope involves expectation. And that expectation produces perseverance to press on, to keep going forward in the faith. And that brings up the third promise, and that's this. We shall be pure like Christ. We shall be spiritually pure. We shall be physically pure. We shall be ceremonially pure. We shall be like Christ. All glory to God. We sing this hymn often on Christ the solid rock. And I think it states this so eloquently. It says this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I shall not trust the sweeter frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand.
So what do we do with this information? That's the question. So what? What does this mean? We have seen in our text what Christian hope is and what Christian hope is built upon. It is built upon the sure foundation of God himself. Christian hope is the expectation of that which is true and certain. Christian hope is in the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ and the promises of God found in God's word. And John has shown us that Christian hope produces in the believer an expectation that we shall be like Christ, that we shall see Christ, and we shall be pure like Christ. R.C. Sproul, speaking of Christian hope, makes this statement. Hope is called the anchor of the soul because it gives stability to the Christian life. But hope is not simply a wish. I wish that such and such would take place. Rather, it is that which latches on the certainty of the promises of the future that God has made. Where's your hope? Is your hope built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness? Where is your hope? Are you anchoring yourself in the world? Or are you anchoring yourself in Christ? My prayer would be that there would not be one person here who has set their affections and their expectation on anything other than Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord.